0: Good afternoon. You are listening to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Welcome to Undercurrents. My name is Jenny. I'll be here with you for the next half hour. Our guest in our virtual studio today is Justin Richardson, who's a professor in geosciences here at UMass. Justin studies, well, many things. We'll hear about some of them. But in particular, we're going to focus on soil toxicity. I knew I would have a hard time with toxicity, soil toxicity and environmental justice. So, Justin, welcome to Undercurrents.
1: Thank you for having me on, Jenny. It's uh, always great to preach the gospel of soils.
0: <laughs> the gospel of soils. Well, since you brought it up, tell us a little bit about the gospel of soils and your research.
1: Yeah. So, um, as an uh, introduced, I study soil toxicology. Well, really trace metals and trace elements in soils. And, You know, no one really starts their career saying, hey, I want to be a professional hole digger, but soil science is just this multifaceted field in which you're bringing together geology, chemistry, uh, physics, biology, all these things together to study this interesting medium that feeds the earth. So, you know, I, I wandered through engineering and botany as an undergraduate, and then I found out that in botany, you don't learn how to grow plants necessarily, and it was really soil science that brought it all together. And uh, so they actually do have an undergrad degree in soils. It's uh, common, it's uh, at most land grant universities. And the goal is to understand the physical, biological and chemical processes that govern uh, things in soils for life, uh, generally for life to be supported. But there's other means like water transport, erosion, um, even home foundations are dependent on soil science. And I have this little tiny niche of trace elements So soils are just this hodgepodge of minerals and rocks with lots of different chemical features in there. And my goal is to understand why are they there, the different elements? Uh, How do they get there from humans or rocks? And then what are the implications for organisms? Be there humans that are growing it for food uh, or if it's trees for forestry, or if it's soil organisms or soil dwelling organisms and their toxicological uh, responses to elements in soils. So it's a lot.
0: Um, so, do you actually spend time digging holes?
1: Yeah. So, my PhD actually is not a doctor of philosophy. It's actually a professional hole digging degree. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. It's uh, it's uh, yeah. I go out and dig holes. Um, last summer, uh, even though there was a pandemic raging, you know, we took our uh, precautions and we dug uh, or sampled 450 soils um, just in one summer. So, we dig hundreds of holes. Uh, and analyze them for their trace elements and macronutrients, thinking about uh, you know, toxic- toxicity and also their uh, essentiality. Because trace elements are this dual nature where they can be toxic like lead, cadmium and arsenic, things that your body doesn't need. But also there are trace elements that you need for your uh, micronutrition like copper, zinc, cobalt, those are things that are enzyme cofactors, which help your proteins fold properly or prevent uh, redox or oxidation, which will cause the macromolecules to fold or uh, function improperly in your, bio, in your biochemistry. So yeah, it's multifaceted. These metals can be both good and bad.
0: So I have had people say, oh, do you take zinc supplements or magnesium supplements? But I never heard about copper
1: yeah probably get all the copper you need through other means um uh like uh, ground tubers like potatoes have lots of micronutrients these things that you know they're also in your water they're also in beverages so there's many ways besides just uh eating plant material to get (laughs) exposed to these metals
0: or eating eating dirt dirt, nice clean dirt (laughs) so when you analyze Why don't we continue with the example of this summer, which, as I recall, though it's hard to recall now, I recall it was a very hot summer, and you were out there with students um, digging holes?
1: Yeah, so actually it was in the top five uh, hottest summers for many cities here in Western Massachusetts, uh, and also one of the driest. We had some severe drought conditions uh, throughout the Connecticut River Valley. Um, Yeah, so the science is not that... that that advance at the beginning. It's essentially going out there with a trowel or an auger, which is used to then bore a hole into the earth, and then we put the soils into Ziploc bags, and uh, we bring them back to the lab. With this particular project, I was working with an undergraduate, uh, Eric Cerkevich, uh, and his thesis is uh, looking at the spatial distribution of trace elements in urban forest soils, which we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit about what are urban forests and essentially we analyze them for metals using two different uh, methods. We use the traditional method, which is to take the soils back and then we digest them in strong acids to get the metals into a soluble form. And then we run the samples on an inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer, which is a fancy way to say that we actually can separate the ions by their mass. And then we measure their abundance to figure out what the concentration of the elements are in the soils. But uh, we actually have this funding from the USDA, the United States Department of Agricultural Natural Research Conservation Service, to then um, test, can we actually use a portable x-ray fluorescence instrument to measure metals in soils. So rather than having to digest them and then run them and use all these strong acids, uh, it uses the powers of x-rays. So it shoots x-rays into samples. and uh, and knocks out inner uh, electrons in the inner orbitals. And then electrons fall from outer orbitals into the inner orbitals and release more X-rays. And then we actually have an X-ray detector in the X-ray emitter so that we can measure what X-rays are coming back. And through that, we can actually quantify and identify elements in soils. So then it skips hours and hours of processing. And it actually can tell you within about 30 seconds uh, the, roughly the concentrations of elements in soils. So, we were trying to check its uh, efficacy and when does it fail? Because if the USDA is going to be investing in this technology, they want to make sure that it is, you know, what is the accuracy, what's the precision of those measurements?
0: So, you ex- excite electrons out of where they're supposed to be, and then you measure precise lines by where they get absorbed again?
1: Yeah, yes. So, um, there's characteristic energies for um, different electrons falling from different orbitals. I don't wanna go too, too much into the weeds, I'm sorry. I know that you are a physicist and you (laughs) like that. Uh, I am, you know, like at this part it's like an analytical chemist. So trying to figure out what elements are there and quantifying them. Um, This instrument is slightly black box because, you know, we have the, we have the detectors and we have the emitters, but I'm not in there working to uh, tweak the energies. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have my go-to bands in terms of uh, quantifying them. So yeah, it, even though it's like you know we're digging holes, we look like five-year-olds when we go out there because we're just putting soils in bags. Uh, but it, there's some advanced instrumentation that goes into quantifying and measuring the metals <laughs> in the soils.
0: So what? D- What were your results in terms well, I want to ask two two questions about results at least, but in terms of the FDA being interested in how accurate this um, method is, what did you find?
1: Yeah, so, so far the the USDA has been, um, they actually are in the purchase of buying these instruments uh, for their technicians uh, and their different offices throughout the United States, because it's just so much cheaper than, uh, right now, the USDA sends all their samples to Nebraska, and it takes up to two years to to get the data back. So this one, you know, they can get a rough sense. Um, you know, with precision, uh, it can it can get give the same uh, you know numbers back. So the precision, it's all right. Not as accurate as mass spectrometry, for example. Um, you know, your error might be closer to 25 percent, while with mass spectrometry, we're like probably closer to two or less in terms of uh, the precision. But um, at some times uh, it does fail. It's like hitting the side of a barn at times where you know it, one sample can be za- uh, analyzed and come back at like 150 parts per million. And then sometimes you zap it again and it comes back 300. So there are some errors in there because the sensitivity and how it, in, in, its, uh, in its measurement, it, it can vary. So we're finding that it's not as precise nor as accurate as the traditional ways, but I mean, getting uh, data in 30 seconds compared to, you know, two weeks or even two years is a big advancement for um, soil scientists and also the USDA NRCS.
0: So I guess it might depend upon what one wants to know. If you want to know, are there poisons present? You know, yes or no. So that can give you a start and then maybe you can get more precise data later on.
1: Absolutely. What we're looking at so far is like you wouldn't bet you wouldn't bet your car and you wouldn't bet your house on, on the number, but you can at least get a pretty good ballpark that, you know, you're nowhere near regulatory limits, say for lead. You know, once you get to 500 parts per million, there are, you know, some legal ramifications for having that much lead in your soil. So the portable x-ray fluorescence, uh, we can see that, but if you were to try and say the difference between say 450 and 500, um, you would probably have to do the traditional route to really uh, ensure that number because once you get into the, you know, like at 500 parts per million, if you have a child out there that can potentially eat the, the, eat the soil or it can become mobilized and become part of the dust that gets into your house, you know, there's some direct health imp- implications for that. So, you know, we can go out there and zap and say, oh, you're like at 30 parts per million lead. You're pretty good. You're very good, actually. Um, the natural background is between 40 and 70 parts per million lead in soils. That's just background because... You know, um, elements are tricky. They can go anywhere and be anywhere because of uh, because they can substitute for each other in rocks. So there's always going to be a little bit of arsenic, a little bit of lead, a little bit of cadmium in soils. And uh, so we were testing urban forests. We also did this uh, test on some community garden soils. And, you know, it's kind of tough to tell, you know, community garden uh, managers like, hey, you know, there is one part per million arsenic in your soil and they're like, what? That, why is there so much arsenic? It's like, no, 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 it's like you're below, below regulatory actions. You know, there's lots of things that you can do to double check and make sure. But to be honest, there's ar- a little bit of arsenic in almost all soils.
0: Okay. So my next question about your results was, what did you find in terms of the content? And maybe you should start telling listeners, like, were you checking out um, urban forest soils? So where were the sites?
1: Yeah, excellent. So urban forest, what is that? Um, people define urban forest as simply a tree in an urban area with some soil beneath it. Uh, I think it's more uh, advanced than that or like there's some more criteria. To me, an urban forest is any place where leaves can fall on the ground from the trees and they can decompose without being disturbed. So you know, this could be behind the mini mart, you know, behind the baseball diamond, next to the river. These are all sites where um, you know, there's minimal management and they, uh, the soils are still there. They're still performing various what we call ecosystem services, where they're preventing pollutants from moving into rivers. They're, you know, capturing pollutants and preventing them from moving into um, a terrestrial. So that's where our land-based ecosystems. So they're still doing ecosystem services. Um, so we're trying to we're trying to capture that with this project. So we're trying to, uh, you know, use this money to tackle multiple questions at the same time. So not only is the instrument accurate but also what can we learn from the data we get from the instruments? So we sampled um, spatially across uh, Springfield and Hartford and uh, Connecticut, and then also Le- uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. And uh, so far, what we're seeing is most soils are a little bit enriched compared to what we would expect for forests in terms of their lead concentration, I'll a focus on lead, because um, it's one of the most interesting metals. So, uh, but there are some sites that are approaching regulatory limits, but, uh, with the error that's introduced with the uh, instruments, you know, we kind of uh, we have you definitely had to do the uh, traditional analysis route to make sure that we are below the regulatory limits of, you know, uh, five hundred parts per million lead.
0: So is there a way? So suppose you're you're testing some urban forest and people live around there or work around there, and whatever. And is there some way you can tell the time development? Like, is it increasing in time or decreasing or that you can't get from the data.
1: Yeah, so unfortunately it, this sampling was just one sampling in time. So we have you know, no temporal aspect. We don't know how long the lead's been there. It could have been there you know, two days ago. It could be there for over a hundred years. We're unsure about that. So we'd have to work through some land use history to try and really uh, narrow that down. So we don't have a great grasp on the temporal aspect, but most of the lead throughout the area is either from uh, lead paint which was on most houses. And sometimes the houses get demolished, they create dust and the dust goes places. But the other one is from uh, leaded gasoline. So we used to add tetraethyl lead to gasoline as an anti-knocking agent, basically to make their engines perform better. And that actually released tons, like first both, both metric and also US standard ton measurements uh, throughout all of New England and actually throughout the, East, uh, throughout the United States and actually globally in Canada, uh, Europe, Australia, they also had leaded gasoline. And it was not until the Clean Air Act amendments, uh, really in the early 1990s, that we phased out all leaded gasoline. And there's still some countries in Africa and Asia that still uh, have just recently phased out or still allow for leaded gasoline. So that's how lead got uh, deposited throughout urban areas, really. Uh, New York City is kind of this interesting, unique case because they had um, waste incinerators in their buildings. So lead would be, you know, we had all your residents, they have various things they're throwing into trash chute, and they'd be uh, incinerated in the buildings in New York City. And that created a lot of of lead dusting (laughs) throughout New York City. So they're an interesting bubble. We don't really see that same uh, signal in say Boston, for example, where having you know, tenants incinerate their own waste wasn't as prevalent.
0: So from the, the year that you just quoted, like early 1990s for the Clean Air Act, that tells us that it was a long time coming. That was a long battle to get the lead out of the gasoline.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the Clean Air Act uh, by Richard Nixon in the 1970s, um, I wanna say, say 1972 and then Clean Air Act Amendments, and then the second Clean Air Act Amendments in 1994. So yeah, that's <laughs> 20 years to finally have enough uh, uh, political movement and also you know uh, movement throughout um, the whole policy sphere to move it and phase it out. So yes, change happens, but it takes time sometimes.
0: Right. So maybe you could you broaden the conversation a little bit and talk about what is this, Movement of environmental justice. What does the phrase refer to, or you know, what are the issues that one's talking about there?
1: Yeah, so environmental justice um, is this concept that uh, saving the environment or making the environment better is not allocated equally and is oftentimes distributed on uh, by wealth, so so socioeconomic factors, and also by race. So uh, I've actually heard more recently the term environmental racism being thrown around. To because uh, environmental justice is kind of a soft term, you know. It sounds like oh we're we're solving problems. It's like no, and it's really environmental racism where we still have these issues that are being tackled. So environmental justice is really we're thinking about uh, how do, how are the Clean Air Act amendments and Clean Water Act in, uh, applied, or even more local municipal uh, policies in place are they really to benefit all citizens equally, or are they really trying to make sure that certain areas are uh, you know, are getting uh, the help? And you, you, you hear this term like NIMBY a lot, uh, especially if they around. So NIMBY is not in my backyard, where uh, environmentalists who have uh, more political power or wealth are able to fight off environmental uh, risks and hazards, such as waste incinerators potentially, uh, such as you know, uh, in heavy industrial activities, manufacturing, um, but uh, you know, lower socioeconomic groups, which are particularly uh, brown and black uh, communities, they don't have that political power to be able to push back. And thus uh, they build uh, frequently things that are not uh, good for their health and their community. So you can see things like plastic uh, plants down in the South You can see tar pits or um, coal ash uh, fly pits and ponds in the South. And then here in the Northeast, you can see uh, just near industrial areas, you find lower socioeconomic uh, communities that don't have the power to enforce, say uh, air scrubbing and other uh, technologies. So then their communities get uh, exposed to more pollution, air pollution in particular.
0: I'm expecting that most listeners, oh, by the way, I should say, if you've tuned in recently, you're listening to Undercurrents here on WMUA, and our guest today is Justin Richardson, who's a professor in geosciences at UMass. We're talking about soil toxicity, which is amongst his research specialties, and the broader issue of environmental justice. So I was speculating that many listeners have heard the phrases environmental justice, environmental racism, and also have some idea about the health impacts. I mean, so why is this an issue? You know, is it a question of looking at your window and seeing the greenest trees or, you know, slightly wilting trees, or are there more substantive health issues um, concern there? So people probably have a pretty good idea about that, but why don't you um, just Give us a little indication about, you know, what's really at stake here.
1: Yeah, no, uh, environmental racism, environmental pollution, uh, you know, they start kind of innocuous, like light pollution. You know, how much light do you get in your bedroom makes you, uh, can make you uh, tougher for you to sleep at night. It could be noise pollution, which just also makes a little bit tougher to sleep at night, unless you can get used to it. Uh, I know that I used to live by some train tracks, and man, the first few months, I heard that train at night, but at the end, didn't hear any of it. Uh, but then it can get into the uh, you know, the more dangerous aspects where you get exposed to say volatile organic compounds, which uh, you know, are not good for your lungs. In uh, more urban areas or are, uh, more developed areas, you get exposed to particulate matter. So PM 2.5, which is particulate matter, that's 2.5 microns in diameter or less. Those can go really deep into your lungs compared to like PM10 or even other particulates that can get captured by uh, your body elsewhere. But the particulate matter 2.5 can go deep in your lungs where they can dissolve. And once those get dissolved, uh, sometimes they have organic compounds. Sometimes they have uh, toxic metals like lead or cadmium and those can enter your bloodstream. Uh, Your lungs have a lot of surface area to be able to absorb air. And unfortunately that can uh, go against it uh, because that's a lot of surface area for absorbing metals and other pollutants from the air. And that can, uh, it's been shown that African-Americans have higher rates of asthma, uh, heart disease, and those can be directly attributed uh, to being in part living near pollution sources. So we see it from, you know, light pollution noise all the way to higher risks of cancer, asthma, heart disease, lung disease, those types of issues.
0: And I see that we have about seven minutes um, left in, the, in our, ta- our chatting time. Uh-huh. Um, so let's see, are there, are there other issues in terms of environmental racism that you want to hit upon? I mean, you said increased levels. Do you, I know this is not your field of expertise. Do you have any data, though, or any, any numbers that you can tell us?
1: Uh, not at the top of my head right now, unfortunately, yep. I have uh, a couple slides from my intro to environmental sciences class that I love to tout but uh, I haven't looked at the slides since last year. Okay. Yeah, sorry know. about that. Yeah. But, um, oh, sorry, I was gonna say that, uh, you know, when it comes to Uh, pollution in the environment, it's not like it goes away. There's unfortunately a very long lag period. So even if we were to solve a number of the environmental racism issues today, you know, to actually see it come to fruition. And when we see things like even Flint, Michigan, how long did it take for residents to stop getting exposed to high lead concentrations in their drinking water there? Uh, You know, if we start tackling some of those issues of organic compounds in drinking water, like your PFAS or... Other fun compounds, or really bad compounds, I should say. Uh, you know, it's going to take a long time. So it, the better, the sooner we start on ameliorating some of these issues, you know, the better off because it can take decades to tackle issues like that.
0: When I hear you talking about lead, different sources of lead pollution, I'm thinking like, not that I kind of recall that's very stable, so it's going to hang around. Um, yeah. How do people? make a site make an area safe so what can you do to make things better
1: yeah so um you know if you have a lot of lead in your soil unfortunately um like very very high amounts you just have to truck it out you have to dig it up and remove it as like a basically the toxic waste site that's the only place you can go if you have lower concentrations but still high you can add some like phosphorus and phosphates because that can make it very insoluble so you it wouldn't leach out or go into the air necessarily, but, you know, talking about the legacy effects, uh, another thing that I study because they live in soil are earthworms, and, you know, we were finding high concentrations of lead in earthworms, and that's because of this legacy effect where all of the lead from uh, leaded gasoline was in the soil, and then the earthworms ate the soil, and what we were seeing is actually birds are starting to potentially be exposed to high levels of lead from the earthworms. So you never know in environmental issues how, uh, what kind of problems will be born from the problems of today.
0: <laughs> yeah, No. and then once it's in birds, possibly other small creatures and it goes up the food chain, so to speak. Yes. All right, well, in the last couple of minutes that we have left, um, I wanna shift gears slightly again and um, talk about racism in the classroom, racism in the academy. That's it's often referred to in recent years, uh, have workshops and so forth on diversity and inclusion, an inclusive classroom. So are there things that you've, well, <laughs> let's ask this in positive terms. Are there techniques that you found in your, your teaching here or other places that you think helps to make the, the classroom more inclusive. I mean, this is a different aspect of, um, let's say environmental justice, the sure. environment that people live and function in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing is that environmental sciences and, you know, policies, they've been unfortunately, uh, areas that, you know, African-Americans, Hispanic communities have not really had a strong foothold in. So a lot of things when we think about the environment, you know, we think about crunchy stuff. We think about hiking, we think about camping outdoors, and a lot of communities of color, they don't really, they, that's not uh, things that they grew up doing. You know, They grew up in more urban areas like myself. I've never gone camping growing up. It's just, it's a foreign concept. Like why, why are we gonna go take all our stuff from outside our house to go stay outside of our house? It doesn't make any sense. So um, with environmental science is really putting the facet not on these like uh, aesthetics of being crunchy and wilderness and you know, lumberjack man, but really, it's to protect our environment, to protect our c- communities, and to be able to, uh, you know, enjoy the beauty that is around us. Even, you know, urban forests. You know, you start thinking about trash plants and, you know, invasive plants and vines and things that are gross and, you know, trash bags dumped there. But really, they have their own aesthetic nature and beauty to themselves. Uh, they have they have flowers. I promise you. You know, they have woodland creatures that live there too. And in and of themselves, how do we appreciate the beauty of a tree growing through concrete? Um, I think that that's something that's underappreciated. You know, we like to tout the forests; the national forest is really um, very important and inspiring. But I, I would turn that on his head and argue that urban forests are a great way for, uh, for students to appreciate the environment near them. And once we turn, uh, you know, turn the lens toward that angle about what the environment looks like around you, I find that students are far more interested in engaging in the environment because it's their environment that we're interested in.
0: So a final question, or I think it's probably the final question. In terms of teaching in this, um, the last year, in terms of there's pandemic, there is an enormous amount of um, protests, protests about racism, there was an enormous amount of racist activity. Um, Did you see these aspects, what's going on in the globe? Did you see that influencing students in the classroom?
1: Yeah, so the summer brought a lot to light or back to light. Some of us forgot that, you know, from uh, say either Michael Brown or even um, Trayvon Martin, that these issues were happening, but they continue on. And, you know, lest we forget that uh, they are still at issues so I, I do see a lot of um, a lot of people moving toward that and, and, and realizing how much of an issue it is uh, it goes two ways so I'm very happy that that gets up spotlight and that we need to think that you know academia is not you know like this bubble that is impenetrable toward uh, real life things and you know being a black scientist I have to worry how the police are going to see me when I'm out in the field with a shovel you know, they are. They going to think I'm going to rob someone, or fresh from robbing someone, when I'm coming out of the the woods uh, or like these plots. So you know, how am I viewed? And I can never, I can never change the fact I'm uh, a black scientist. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit disheartening and a little bit tough. But I'm glad that you know like my department, the Department of Geosciences, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, they've been doing a lot to really tackle that issue because it is a systemic issue. It goes from the top all the way down to the bottom from undergraduate experience all the way up to the provost and what they recognize is worth funding or the Dean. What does the Dean throw money toward? So there's a lot of things to think about in, in that facet. And I just hope that, um, you know, I hope that, that um, you know, students of color out there that they realize that they can make changes not just being a uh, social scientist or anthropologist that changes can be made by being a you know a black soil scientist or a black botanist whatever you, whatever field you want to be you can instill change in that sphere you don't have to you know turn your whole career and become a uh, you know opinion writer which I hope that scientists uh, you know if you want to be a scientist still be a scientist you can you, you can make science. change
0: then. Go <laughs> be a scientist thank you very much Justin Rist. Richardson, professor in geosciences here at UMass on undercurrents WMUA, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.